And so I would like for you to begin. Let's begin by reading the entire first chapter. So if you have your Bibles, um, feel free to, to follow along. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and you hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a, a robe that will be rolled up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve, sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? That's the reading of God's word. So today... If you do not catch anything else, the one thing I would like for you to catch is the main point, the transition that this preacher makes between the seven statements about the superiority of the son. Now he's pulling together a, a bunch of scripture verses, but he begins by transitioning with this way. Jesus is superior to angels. Having become, at verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That name... Uh, is likely, in this context, son. Son. Son of God. So if you do not catch anything else today, know this, that Jesus is superior to angels. All right? Kids, Jesus is superior to angels. And so the writer, now, preacher, wants to now go through all of these seven scripture passages. And this is what's called um, uh, stringing pearls. 
This was kind of a, a Jewish way of teaching and arguing their case. They would string together a bunch of scripture passages that would support what it is that they were contending for. And so that's known as stringing together pearls, finding these pearls of scripture and then stringing them together. And so we're going to go through these. We're going to go through these pretty quick, and we'll, I'll give you some of the background and the context behind each of these Old Testament passages. And in your handout, we have not only that verse from Hebrews, but we also have the Old Testament reference that it's referring to. You might even have some of notes of this in your Bible as well, too. So we're going to go through a couple of these and then have a couple of insights about each one. The first one, first scripture is Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That is from Psalm 2, verse 7. Now, the, the Psalms uh, is, was basically Israel's hymn book. Those were songs written in praise to God. And it begins, Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of considered the, uh, the introduction to the whole thing. And Psalm 2 is what's known as like a royal song or psalm or an enthronement psalm. And this was sung in honor of David being anointed as God's, as the king of Israel, God's chosen servant over the nation of Israel. And so if you would turn to Psalm 102, or excuse me, Psalm 2, and we'll look kind of a, you'll get the idea of what they are uh, singing about. Begins, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and against his, interesting word here, anointed. And against his anointed. The word there uh, in Hebrew is, where, is the same word that we get, Messiah. Or as it's translated in the New Testament, Christ. Right? So, this is, uh, this is interesting. Now, this is a term which referred to the anointing of God's kings in Israel. Okay. So um, skip down to uh, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is, again, God speaking about his chosen king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So these are the words of the king. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this is a psalm sung in praise of God's anointed king. But what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's saying, see, that anointed king that God was anointed and called as the ruler over his people, that's the son. That is Jesus. So Psalm 2, the writer stringing that first pearl. Psalm 2 is singing about Christ. And here's the second one. In Hebrews, it says, uh, verse 5, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is citing 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you would, turn to 2 Samuel. We won't look at all of these, but there's a couple here that I think are very important for us to look at. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, First and 2 Samuel record the history of Israel's kings. Begins when Israel doesn't have a king, and Israel asks God for a king, and they get Saul. You remember Saul because he was head and shoulders above all of the others. Uh, but God's favor had fallen off of Saul and he had cho chosen David to be his anointed servant. 
And, um, and so now David has been king. He's had victories over the, uh, God's enemies and the Philistines. And now he's getting kind of near the end of his life. And in um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God, excuse me, David is living in his kingly mansion. All right? So picture his nice kingly mansion right there in Jerusalem. But the ark of God, the presence of God, was sitting in the tabernacle, a tent, you know, fabric covering over the top. And so David gets in his mind, here I am living in this glorious house, and the ark of my God is living in a tent. That's something's not right there. And so he gets in his heart. He wants to build a, a house for God. And so he goes to the, Nathan the prophet and says, I want to build a house. Go tell God, God my plans. And so Nathan says, okay, it sounds good to me. Nathan that night gets a message from God to give back to David. And so turn with me in verse, let's begin in verse 8. This is God saying these, uh, this thing to, to David through Nathan the prophet. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And when he begins that way, you know he's serious. Thus says the Lord. Tell him this, thus says the Lord. I took you from the pasture and from following sheep that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a great make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. So David has plans to make God a house, and the Lord says, well, actually, I'm going to make a house out of you. And then look at what he says here. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die and you pass away, I will raise up your offspring, kind of note that, offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Here, this is the passage. So this is the word God's word speaking through the prophet to David, and he's saying, I'm going to make a, a, a house for you and your offspring, somebody from your body, he will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And then this is how it continues. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Interesting what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. There's a promise God is giving to David. He's saying your somebody from your line is going to be on the throne of Israel forever. And I will be with him. He will be my son and I will be like a father to him. And he is going to build a house. Now, in the immediate context, you would think, who's this referring to? Solomon, right? So this is referring to Solomon because David doesn't build a house. Solomon builds a house. 
But we see, if you look at the, the rest of this story, Solomon's kingdom doesn't last forever. As a matter of fact, Solomon's sons split the kingdom in half. You know, uh, Jeroboam takes the northern tribes of Israel. Rehoboam takes the southern tribes. They kind of split. Uh, the northern Israel starts worshiping other gods. Eventually, the northern kingdom is destroyed and conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, and eventually, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians. Both of those kingdoms are gone. And as a matter of fact, in Jesus' day, there still was no king in Israel. Who's this passage really referring to? The writer of Hebrews says, this is referring to Jesus. Your offspring will come from the line of David. As a matter of fact, it seems kind of strange when you think of these words, um, that the Lord will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. This is the same language that Isaiah uses for the suffering servant, the anointed one. By his stripes will we be healed. So this is, the writer here is seeing, this is referring to Jesus. This promise is fulfilled in God's son. There's echoes to it to Solomon. You know, you can kind of see some of that, but it's clear. This is referring to Jesus. This is phenomenal what this writer is doing. He is going through, this is the second, and this is only the second pearl. He's, look at, this is who Jesus is. So Jesus is superior to angels because God the Father calls him son. Angels don't get called son. The anointed is called the son. So that's number two. Let's look at the third one. It says, let all God's angels worship him in verse six. Let all God's angels uh, worship him. Now, this is what he says when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Interesting uh, use of word there for firstborn. Um, the, the firstborn there mean, doesn't mean necessarily born first. Um, it means of, it's not like priority in time. It's like supreme in rank. So um, this is the firstborn is not necessarily the one born first because some have taken this passage to mean, see, Jesus is actually a created being. He was, uh, although Jesus was born of a woman, um, they would say, no, Jesus is, is purely human and not divine uh, at, at all. Um, I, my wife and I were just thinking of this funny story yesterday. Uh, when we were first married, I was kind of right out of seminary. And uh, it was a Monday afternoon, and I was off of school or off of work. It was my day off. And there's, you know, a knock at the door. And then so I go and answer the door, and there's two elderly ladies uh, standing there. And they have, like, literature in their hand, okay? And so I was like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. What, what, what can I do for you? And they go, well, we would like to come and talk to you about Jesus. And I was like, this is great because I like Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. And so, um, so I said, what would you like to say about Jesus? And they go, well, and they jumped kind of right into it. I mean, and they're like 70s, maybe 70 years, years old. And, um, and so they go, well, do you know he was just a man, right? And I go, well, no, actually, I believe Jesus is the son of God. He is, he is truly God. And they go, well, he can't be God because... Uh, the scriptures say that he is the firstborn, and if he was born, like, you know, the first one born, then he was a creative being. He isn't eternal, and if he isn't eternal, he isn't God. And um, 
I feel bad for these ladies because, again, I was right out of seminary. And I was like, really? Well, um, that's interesting. That word that you're, you, that, that you're referencing there, and it's the same one right here in Hebrews. I go, that's the word um, that's used in the Old Testament in Psalm 89 for, for David. Did you know that? And they were like, uh, and they started to do this, like flip through the pages. Like, I didn't have that in my script. And so, um, and so I go, no, that's actually referred to David. David is referred to in Psalm 89 as the firstborn. And I go, now, was David born first? Which was he born? Wasn't he born seventh, right? He's the seventh. Because when uh, Samuel goes to anoint David, he goes, okay, brings, you know, uh, um, who's David's father? Jesse Bring, goes to Jesse and Jesse's like, here's my oldest son. And he's like, that's not him. And he goes to the second one. That's not him. And goes to the third one. That's not him all the way down. Well, don't you have any more kids? Like David wasn't even there. And they go, well, he's out shepherding the sheep. And he brings David in and he goes, this is the anointed. And I go, so this is referring to, uh, this is referring to God's anointed prince ruler. Um, they, they had to, they were on a schedule or something. They had to leave right after that. So uh, I invited them in. You know, I had lemonade, cookies, but um, they, were, they were busy. Um, so this is firstborn. So when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says this. Let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is hugely profound because you have God here saying in the Old Testament, the God who says, I and the God alone. Only I am to be worshiped. But he says of the son, he tells angels, all of the angels worship him. Profound. Think about that. The one true God is the only one who is to be worshipped. We see that in the Ten Commandments. God and God alone is to be worshipped and no others. You're not supposed to give my name to any other person. And he says, God's saying here, he should be worshipped. Let angels even worship him. Not just Humans let angels worship him. So Jesus is superior to angels because God commands the son to be worshipped. Stringing pearls. Stringing pearls. Let's go to the number, the fourth one. When he says, now here he makes a contrast. So he's kind of set that up and he said, this is what it says about the son. You have the father-son relationship. And as a matter of fact, he commands all angels to worship him. Now he, he puts the angels over here in one category and then the rest of the scripture verses over here. So he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's pretty intimidating. I mean, everywhere you see angels in the scriptures, whenever a human inter interacts with an angel, what, is, what does the human do? Fall on his face. Terrifying. I mean, these are, these are uh, intimidating, intimidating uh, angels, messengers from God, right? So he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is powerful, powerful messengers. But he contrasts that. He says... Although his, his angels might be servants of his, his messengers, because that's the word, what the word angels means, he contrasts that with what he says about the Son in Scriptures 5 and 6. Your throne, O God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is uh, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is coming from Psalm 
um, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And then the following one, scripture number 6, he says, and your, uh, well, it ends with your years will have uh, no end. He says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginnings, and the heavens are the work of your hand, from Psalm 102. We see earlier that the writer of Hebrews has already said Jesus was active in creation. He was the agent through whom God created the world. And not only did he create the world, it's his, it's his powerful word actually sustains and carries the universe onto its intended purpose that God has for it. And so he's here now, he strings together these scripture passages, one that speaks of the son being enthroned and having a scepter and on a kingdom because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness and that he was anointed with oil. And then in, the, in Psalm 102, he says that, uh, and his kingdom will have no end. There will be no end to, uh, to Christ's reign and rule. And this was written in the Psalms. And the writer here is saying, this is referring to Jesus. And he ends with this question. And to which of the angels, uh, well, let's, uh, let's get back to our point here. Jesus is superior to angels because angels were servants. This is that main point. Angels were servants while the son is the eternal king. And so here's the last one. The last pearl that he's stringing together. Where he says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is also speaking to the enthroning of Jesus in his kingdom forever and ever. So he ends with this last question in verse 14. This concluding question. Are they, and the they here is referring to angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal, or to inherit salvation? And the answer is yes. The angels are ministers. The angels are servants, and they serve his purposes for his sake. At least true angels at least true angels do. So angels pale in comparison to Jesus. So the main point, again, Jesus is superior to angels. Right? That's what this passage is saying. But here's the question. Why angels? Why is the writer spending so much time and effort to show how Jesus is superior to to angels is you know what what's 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 significant about uh, what's happening here we all know what the passage is saying jesus is superior to angels but but what what is it that the author is is trying to do unless one of the temptations that this group of christians was experiencing was the temptation to either elevate angels or to diminish who jesus was or both. Or both. Right? Or maybe that, that they, they had embraced the, the true Christian teaching about who Christ was. But they started to morph it with a whole bunch of other ideas. 
Maybe they started to view Jesus as just another angel or just another messenger. Or that Jesus was just kind of a mediator of the spiritual world, right? That, and why, if that's the point, why would this matter to us? Why would this be important to us? Because people don't worship angels today, do they? People aren't seeking salvation or something through like the spiritual realm today, do they? Well, I think that there are actually so many parallels. That what this passage is addressing and what the, uh, this first audience was likely going through was the temptation to uh, spiritualize uh, Jesus. Uh, and maybe to view him as one of these other angels. There, um, there was an uh, early false teaching that was in the church right around this time known as uh, Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, can, could you say the word Gnosticism? No? Gnosticism, right. And so let me show you. Let me show you a chart. And kind of comparing uh, Gnosticism, which was kind of a competing... Uh, ideology, a competing uh, religion in that day. And some of some elements of Gnosticism actually borrowed Christian language and Christian ideas. So let me kind of give you just a summary sketch. Um, on the left-hand column here is, and this is just in the categories like God, man, problem, and salvation. So on the, on the left-hand column here, you would see um, the Christian understanding of these things. They would see God as the supreme creator who made all things. We see this in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God spoke everything into existence. And then at the end, he says, and it was very good. And it was very good and very good. And on the last day, he says, and it's, it's very good. God made the universe. There's one supreme God creator who made the universe. Now, Gnosticism would say, well, there is a supreme God. But that supreme God um, is purely spiritual. Purely operates in the spiritual realm. As a matter of fact, they would, they would kind of view the spiritual uh, as being like ultimate reality, but, but anything in the material world would kind of be, would be bad. And so the material world was actually made by a smaller, less, uh, or like an inferior being, demiurge, they would call it. Um, now, the Christian understanding of man was that man was created in God's image, in his image and likeness, and then this is important, out of and part of the material world, right? Man was fashioned out of uh, the dust of the ground, and God breathed the breath of life into the man. Gnosticism would say, well, humans have the divine within them. It's trapped in a body, but they would have the divine in them. And they would refer to it as the divine spark. You ever heard of that? The divine spark within you. Okay? Now, the problem for Christian understanding with man, he was, even though the man was created in God's image, is that humanity, on their own will, they rebelled against their creator. And that we all now suffer the sinful effects of, the effects of that sin, that sinful nature. Gnosticism would say, no, mankind's problem isn't a, a sin problem. It's, um, it's that they're imprisoned. They're imprisoned in the bodies. They have this divine spark, but it's shrouded by the physical. And the need that they would have would be not salvation for, from sin from somebody else. It would be liberation by receiving secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. That's what the word Gnosticism means. It's come from the word Gnosis. It means knowledge. Okay? So liberation through a secret knowledge of who they already are. Or enlightenment that they receive from spiritual intermediaries or messengers. Right? That's vastly different than the Christian teaching about 
a, a, a savior who has to come and save us apart from ourselves, right? See the difference? Now, it's easy to, to see, like, you know, there's, you can see Gnosticism in, in different uh, places today. Maybe some kind of New Age spiritualities, uh, Eastern religions. Um, I have a couple of quotes here. Uh, I'll read to you as well. This is like a very popular book from a few years ago. Neil Donald Walsh in his book called Conversations with God. And this is, so he'd have these conversations with God and then he would write them all down. And so um, this is one of the conversations that he had with God when God says to him, um, I cannot tell you my truth unless you stop telling me yours. And um, this, this uh, author, Neil, writes back, but, but my truth about God comes from you. And God says, well, who said so? And Neil goes, well, others. And God says, what others? And Neil says, leaders, ministers, rabbis, priests, book, the Bible, for heaven's sakes, he says. And God says to Neil Donald Walsh, those are not authoritative sources. And Neil says, they aren't. And God says, no. And then Neil says, well, then what is? And God says to Neil, this is the authoritative source. Listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Whenever any of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, presumably including the Bible, forget the words. Words are the least reliable purveyor of truth. This is, this is kind of that Gnostic idea, right? The divine spark, it's within you. Higher thoughts. Here's another quote from Elaine Pagels in her book, The Gnostic Gospel. Um, and this is, this Gnosticism, we're actually uncovering documents. Archaeologists are uh, discovering uh, documents from this religion that, you know, was roughly about the time, uh, same time as Christianity. And she writes this, the living Jesus of these texts, these Gnostic Gospels, speak of illusion and enlightenment and not sin and repentance like the Jesus of the New Testament. Instead of coming to save us from sin, he comes as a guide who opens access to spiritual understanding. And when the disciple attains enlightenment, Jesus no longer serves as his spiritual master. The two have become equal, even identical. See? This inner spark, inner enlightenment. Now, now these are kind of, this is Eastern. This is kind of outside of Christian religious uh, Christian Christianity. But I want to tell you, this same essential teaching is alive in Christian circles today. It is Reemerging, I guess you could say. It's reemerging. Um, there's like a neo-Gnostic uh, or a new knowledge that's, that's starting to find itself in, um, in Christian churches. And uh, a couple of authors have noticed this shift as well, too. Daniel, um, oh, spirituality for dummies. Um, that's not a recommended resource, by the way. Um, uh, Daryl Bach and Daniel Wallace write about this in, this in their book called Dethroning Jesus, where he says, they call it Jesus-anity. Is that saying that right? Jesus-anity? It is a term, a coin term for the alternate story about Jesus. Here, the center uh, of the story is still Jesus, 
But Jesus is either as a prophet or a teacher of religious wisdom. In Jesus' sanity, Jesus remains very much Jesus of Nazareth. He points the way to God, leads people into a journey with God. His role is primarily one of teacher, guide, and example. Jesus' special status involves his insight into the human condition and enlightenment he brings. There is no enthronement of Jesus at God's side, only the power of his teaching and example. In this story, the key is that Jesus inspires others, but there is no throne for him. He is one among many, the best, perhaps, and one worthy to learn from and follow. I could give you plenty of other examples. You've probably seen um, teachers that would be pastors of Christian churches that talk about the potential that you have within you, right? What you are capable of. You just need to change your mindset and the way you view the world. Or maybe you have to, uh, maybe they would advocate certain kind of practices and to help you to access that divine spark within you. Is this sounding familiar? Have you kind of seen some of this? You may have seen uh, personalities on TV. Um, I think that this is out there, and I think that this is um, this Gnosticism is is alive, and it's and it's in Christian churches, which makes it all the more dangerous because it sounds so close to the truth. So how can you tell, right? How can you tell? Here's, here's a good rule of thumb. If the problem is outside of you and the solution is inside of you, that's a pretty good hint that you might be experiencing Gnostic teaching. If the problem is out there and the solution is what I can do, how can I access my, my inner self, how can I really get to my heart and purify my heart, and follow my heart, um, that, that's maybe a really good sign that this has moved away from being the Christian teaching to Gnostic teaching, no matter how much they put a Jesus veneer on it. That's, that's kind of our test. So a couple of questions. Uh, which, let's go back to our chart here. Um, let's test ourselves. Which view of God do you have? I mean, when you really think about it, which view of God um, is, is in your mind? Do you view God as creator or do you got, view God as a spiritual being who doesn't interact with his creation? Or in this question in particular, um, man, do you view man as created in the image of God, but who sinned and rebelled against God and needs a savior outside of himself? Or do you view uh, Human beings, do you view yourself as um, having the divine within them already? Do they possess the divine spark? What's your view of the problem? Is the problem that the human, humankind has sinned against their creator? Or is the problem that, um, that people just don't really realize who they really are? And what's salvation? Is it the work of a redeemer and a savior outside of you? Or is it salvation through liberation through some secret hidden knowledge? 
I think that this is probably, um, this teaching is something that the writer of Hebrews was, uh, was addressing. And which is why he had to, put, to go to great pains to say, um, no, Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is more superior to angels. Jesus is superior to spirituality. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is the son of God. He is the one who's given the definitive communication from, who, from God on who God is and what he has done. And it's through faith in him. This is a much better story. It's through faith in him, Jesus, who was died according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that when we who put faith in Christ for what he has done, when we've turned from idols and we've turned from false understandings of who God is to serve and worship the one true living God in Jesus, that's, that's a better story. That's a better, better gospel. And we are called to worship this Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, the salvation we have in Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me as we do, as we close in prayer? Uh, want to remind you, we hit the offering boxes over in the back, and um, and you are welcome to stay and join us here, everyone for uh, for our feast. And uh, so I will pray for I'll pray for our food, and I'll pray, pray to close our time. So let's pray, Father God. We um, we want to again give you thanks for the words that you have put down. How you have spoken through writers who put quill to parchment and how we have ink on paper that these are words that we can trust because they are your words. And that they still have power because they still, every word points to the supremacy and superiority of Jesus. God, thank you for what it teaches us. And how, God, for us to have our eyes open to see ways in which the picture of Jesus is blurred and distorted and merged with other, other ideas. God, thank you for your scripture that brings clarity so that we can worship Jesus aright. That we can honor him for who he is and for what he has done. And how he was crucified, dead and buried and raised for our justification so that we can be right with you. God, thank you for doing that. 
God, we want to thank you as well for the time that we have after um, after our gathering here and in fellowship together around food and feasting. Um, God, we feasted on your word. Now we're going to feast together on uh, on bread and meat. So God, we want to give you thanks for that and for all the hands who've uh, brought stuff and prepared. And uh, may you bless our time together as as a community that celebrates um, what you've done in our in our lives and in, in collectively and individually. We give you thanks and praise for all things. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, who is sitting at your right hand, ruling and reigning. It's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen and amen. Now may the grace of God and the love of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you.